Thank, thank you for showing up this morning. And just want to talk with you about marriage. This title is Marriage, Soulmates, Roommates, Enemies, or Inmates. It was originally titled Simul, Sex, and Sanctification. Um, and so we are going to talk about, um, we're talking about marriage. marriage. Um, so this first part I won't be able to uh, kick off with because it did depend on some media. So I'll skip ahead. Um, so when my wife and I, when we were undergoing premarital counseling, we got married and um, she couldn't be here, unfortunately, but we got married in 2008 and um, we did our counseling in 2007. And I remember that when we were going through our premarital counseling, a well-meaning minister, uh, he advised us uh, to avoid becoming what he called glorified roommates. Right, so, so my example that I had wanted to give you uh, was Al Bundy. And so <laughs> I, had, um, I found this really great interview uh, with Ed O'Neill about how he actually got the role as Al Bundy. So I guess I'll improvise. I'll kind of recapitulate the interview. Um, it's really cool. I stumbled upon this accidentally. Um, but I guess I didn't realize this, that Ed O'Neill had a theater background, which, like, nothing about him struck me as, like, you know, um, wow, this guy's been in theater. Uh, I'm more familiar with, like, Married with Children and just confession, I've never seen Modern Family, but my understanding is that he was also um, a character on there. And I guess my understanding is that Modern Family was drastically different from... Um, so those who've seen it could, could let me know. But anyways, um, anyone from watching TV in the 90s remembers... Like, Fox had this lineup, right? And I don't know if anybody remembers, like, the Tracy Ullman show, which was, like, the first time that The Simpsons were featured. So you kind of had that period, uh, that late 80s, 90s period, where the whole depiction, I think, of, like, family life and sitcoms, it just changed, right, from, like, the days of, like, the Leave it to Beavers and the I Love Lucy, um, even, like, the 80s, right, like, shows like The Growing Pains and what have you. And so, like, <laughs> with Married with Children, it was, like, a completely different paradigm um, and picture of what marriage looks like. And what's interesting is that in the interview, Ed O'Neill said that he drew the character, because um, he'd been performing in Of Mice and Men, and I guess someone, somehow or, or other, someone from Fox had seen the production, and they were like, that's our guy. And so he drew the inspiration for the character um, from an uncle of his. He had an uncle that uh, would, you know, in his own words, would, uh, you know, he'd come home and he would, you know, his wife would say, hey, I accidentally ran over the dog in the driveway. And say, okay, that's nice. What's for dinner? It's very indifferent kind of uh, attitude and what have you. And so if you're familiar with the character on the show, uh, you know that he just had this very kind of indifferent attitude toward his wife. So that's sort of my picture of like, you know, being a glorified roommate. And that was what the, that's what the minister had counseled us to avoid becoming. Um, and, and again, I think, I think he meant well. But the implication was, hey, don't get so used to each other that you become used to each other, right? Don't end up taking one another for granted. And it reminded me of this quote here I wanted to share with you from uh, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, which I'm sure is familiar to many, and the chapter where he expounds on marriage. And so he says here, he says, being in love is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. There are many things below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. No feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. 
And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the fairy tale ending, quote, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they married, then it says it probably never was nor ever would be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What will become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be, in, quote, in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in the second sense, love as being distinct from, quote, being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will, deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other. So uh, it's interesting, too, because if you read, if you read the, if you read Mere Christianity, you read the chapter, Lewis is a little bit hesitant even about writing on marriage because he admits at the time that uh, he wasn't married at the time that he, he wrote this. Of course, later on, he would eventually marry. Uh, and some of that kind of comes through. Because some of this, you know, I, I agree with the sentiment. I think it's great. Uh, this idea of sort of how we can always have this sort of idealistic vision of what marriage should be and what it should look like. Um, but then when he talks in here about this idea of the strength of marriage being sort of like our will and our commitment and then combined with God's grace, you know, that's where I would depart a little bit. Because I actually think that grace meets us, like we're our will, uh, and our ability to commit gives out. Uh, but, it, but also, where he talks in here about this idea of asking God for grace, even at those moments when you don't particularly like each other. And there's a lot of moments like that. Um, you know, anybody who's been married, maybe even like a month, knows that there are a lot of moments where you really can't stand each other. And you really, let's, like, real talk, even though the grace of God is available there to get you through those difficult moments, um, and even though you know you could ask for God's grace... <laughs> Uh, when you're kind of deadlocked in those moments, you really don't want that grace. I, I don't. Um, you know, in the heat of the moment, you know, when you are in the middle of conflict, yeah, I know I could probably ask God to soften my heart and give me the grace to forgive and what have you, but I really like being right. And I really like, uh, like making my point and, and proving my point and, and getting my point across. You know, I'm not really thinking about the glory of God. I remember a church that we used to attend, and it was a very frequent thing for the pastor to quote Proverbs 19.11, uh, where it says something to the effect of, uh, it is to a person's glory to overlook a transgression. And so we were often uh, counseled to just pass over. You know, if your spouse does something that irritates or annoys you or disappoints you in some way, just pass over. I don't want to pass over. Um, you know, I, I want to win the argument. I, I want to get even sometimes. I want to justify myself. I don't want to turn the other cheek. I don't want to defer. Even though I know that in the long run, deference and conceding and giving ground uh, you know, when, when, when you don't agree on something or when you're having a conflict, even though I know that in the long run it probably will yield better results. Uh, I'm not really concerned about that. I don't really care about what we would call, we refer to as like, you know, the theology of the cross. I remember uh, several years back, uh, Ethan had quoted Robert Capon and uh, talking about the difference between the left-handed versus right-handed power. And there's a quote, I don't have the exact quote here, but I guess Capon said something to the effect of, uh, you know, giving way to left-handed power 
probably isn't going to yield any kind of noticeable, measurable, immediate results. It might even get your chin bashed in. Uh, but the only thing it does ensure is that you will not, even if your chin gets bashed in, have made the mistake of closing any interpersonal doors from your side. So that's all good and great. But the problem is that in the moment, we, we don't really have the ability or the faculties to think in that objective, rational manner. I found great comfort in the words of St. Peter, uh, coming from his first epistle, 1 Peter 5 and 10. Uh, Peter writes, And the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I like that. I want to be strong. I want to be firm. I want to be steadfast. I want to be restored. But it comes after you've suffered a while. Well, here's the problem. God's a while isn't my a while. Uh, I think of a, a very similar passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, but 2 Corinthians, by the way, I uh, was really encouraged to hear, uh, in I think it was last night's opening talk, 2 Corinthians referenced. It's been a very great help to me, uh, not just in marriage, but just overall, like in my walk with Jesus and in sanctification. And even though, you know, the context when you look in 2 Corinthians, I mean, Paul is talking very specifically about the sufferings that he and his ministry team endured. Of course, Paul had a very unique calling as an apostle, and his sufferings were very unique. Uh, but there's language in there, and I don't have time to like, get into the specifics or what have you, but there's language in there that indicates that it's applicable to even just the daily experience. Even if you don't have a high apostolic calling like Paul, uh, which I don't, even in just the daily experience of living the Christian life, I think it's applicable. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about, he says these, these afflictions, they're, they're light and they're momentary, but they're working for us and exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And I, I read that and I think, oh, Paul, these afflictions, they never feel light to me. And they never feel momentary. Uh, there are times where it feels like, when is this going to end? And I'm going to be honest with you, like, there are times where I thought, I know this is really bad, okay? And don't tell my wife I said this, but uh, there are times where I've thought, like, man, can at least just one of us die? Uh, just get this misery over. Uh, and so, uh, man, I know she's going to see this recording, so I should probably die. Well, yeah, I, we got to, yeah, I'm going to be on the couch for a few weeks. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> the, um, but, but, but in all seriousness, the, um, you know, these, these, these afflictions, they never feel light. They never feel momentary uh, in, in the moment. And when we're focused horizontally on how our marriage is going, that can be a setup for despair. It, it really can be a setup for despair. So the minister that I had mentioned earlier who had told us, just be careful that you guys don't become glorified roommates. You know, don't just get so familiar with each other that you take each other for granted. I feel like this is analogous to the way that we think and talk about our walk with Jesus. So when you think about, I think about like, for example, like certain songs we sing in church, uh, Sweeter Than the Day Before. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, this is one that we used in a church I attended years ago. Was a, We would often sing this one. And you know, the words say, every day with you, Lord, is sweeter than the day before. Uh, something to the effect of every... Every morning I will worship, every evening I will adore, 
every day with you is sweeter, sweeter than the day before, or uh, going back a little bit further, uh, an older song, I keep falling in love with him, meaning Jesus, over and over and over and over again. You know, uh, it gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Oh, what a love between my Lord and I. Or the other uh, classic hymn, In the Garden. And is every day with Jesus really sweeter than the day before? I mean, there are some sweet days with Jesus, but there are also some very bitter and difficult days. I don't know if anybody here has had long periods of time, days, weeks, maybe months, where you don't even sense the presence of the Lord. But you've probably also had times of sweet and deep intimacy with Christ. And both of those are in the, in the Christian life. So it doesn't, our walk with Jesus doesn't necessarily get sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. There are sweet moments, and I'm thankful for those sweet moments, but there can be some dark and bitter days as well. And so I think, again, the way that we kind of think about marriage in terms of this sort of ideal that Christian marriages should excel marriages, uh, so-called marriages in the world, right, in terms of just the, the, the intimacy and uh, getting to know each other and falling in love with one another, because our relationship with God is not like that, it's impossible to expect that our marriages be like that as well. So these sentiments, they're ideal, but we don't functionally live in the ideal. Right? If we could fully enjoy God, life would be better. I found great comfort on quarantine. A few things that I found comfort in on quarantine. Um, quarantine, I was telling somebody last night, it didn't really bother me. I'm a recluse, but uh, <laughs> anyway. And I don't really like socializing um, unless I absolutely have to. So I was cool during quarantine. This was like perfect. Um, so a few things, though, I got a chance to catch up on in quarantine. Rewatched 24 season one, uh, which <laughs> if you're 24 fans, I think that's the best season that they did. Um, had a chance to kind of rewatch that. Uh, finally made myself read uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, what do you call it? The Shelter series. Room. Yeah. So I, I, like, I think we read it like in middle school. Um, and I wasn't much of a reader as a kid, so I started and stopped. And I had nothing but time, so I said, I'm going to actually sit down and read it. Because I bought The Hobbit for my kids. And then I started reading. I said, well, this is good stuff. So I pressed through. So now I refuse to watch the movies because I want my picture and my image of Middle-earth to be what I read in the books. And there's a lot more that I got out of it. Um, so, I mean, maybe some of y'all should look at the movies. But the other thing is, I finally made myself sit down and read uh, Luther's Lectures on Galatians. So I had read people who had read Luther on Galatians, but I had not, with my own eyes, read it. So I sat down and um, finally made my way through it. And so I'm realizing because of time I can't read all this. I'm going to just pick one paragraph here to share with you. So uh, Luther writes here, he says, and he's speaking, commenting on Galatians 4, 6, the fact that the spirit of Christ in our hearts cries unto God and makes intercession for us with groanings should reassure us greatly. However, there are many factors that prevent such full reassurance on our part. We are born in sin. To doubt the good will of God is an inborn suspicion of God with all of us. Besides, the devil, our adversary, goes about seeking to devour us by roaring, God is angry at you and is going to destroy you forever. In all these difficulties, we have only one support, the gospel of Christ. To hold on to it, that is the trick. Christ cannot be perceived with the senses. We cannot see him. The heart does not feel his helpful presence, especially in times of trial. A Christian feels the power of sin, the infirmity of his flesh, the goading darts of the devil, the acts of death, skull and judgment of God. All these things cry out against us. The law scolds us, sin screams at us. Death thunders at us, the devil roars at us. 
In the midst of the clamor, the Spirit of Christ cries in our heart, Abba, Father. Uh, actually, this, is, this one's really good, too. I'm going to squeeze this in. I'm going to make time. And, uh, if a person could fully appreciate what it means to be a son and an heir of God, he would rate the might and wealth of nations' small change in comparison with his heavenly inheritance. What is the world to him who has heaven? No wonder Paul greatly desired to depart and to be with Christ. Nothing would be more welcome to us than early death, knowing that it would spell the end of all our miseries and the beginning of our happiness. Yes, if a person could perfectly believe this, he would not long remain alive. The anticipation of this joy would kill him. But the law of the members strives against the law of the mind and makes perfect joy and faith impossible. We need the continued help and comfort of the Holy Spirit. Um, just one more. Okay, this is, this, is, this is such good stuff. This goes to show how hard it is to believe. Faith is feeble because the flesh wars against the spirit. If we could have perfect faith, our loathing, our loathing for this life and this world would be complete. We would not be so careful about this life. We would not be so attached to the world and the things of the world. We would not feel so good when we have them. We would not feel so bad when we lose them. We would be far more humble and patient and kind, right? So if I really could connect my identity in Christ to my daily life and my daily circumstances in life, of course, life and marriage would be completely perfect. So I remember like when I first, maybe like about a decade ago, when I first came to understand the difference between like our identity in Christ and who we are, uh, you know, vertically versus our outward, um, our interaction in the real world, right? And uh, depending on, you know, how you sort of came into this understanding, like for me, I don't know if anyone's heard of um, the book, The Green Letters by uh, Miles Stanford, uh, otherwise known as like, The Principles of Spiritual Growth. That was really like my first interaction with understanding this difference between like our position in Christ versus our daily walk and our practice. And I can remember like the, just the first time learning about understanding that the understanding like who we are in Christ and how understanding the gospel is supposed to have a major impact on daily life. Uh, so I can remember like there were times when I was first really getting this, uh, understanding that message there were times where I'd be in the heat of an argument and I would try to, as they say, preach the gospel to myself. And I would try to remind myself, you don't have to be right, Jason. Jesus is enough. Your righteousness is in Christ. You do not have to win here. It's only so much of that preaching to yourself that you can do uh, before that flesh just kicks over and says, well, I'm in play company. Um, <laughs> before the flesh kicks over and says, uh, disregard all that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm in church. Disregard all that. Um, you, you just need to be right. You cannot let her continue to get away with this. Um, you're not strong enough to preach the gospel to yourself. I mean, you can sometimes, right? It kind of works. Um, and I do a lot of it. I do a lot of preaching the gospel to myself, especially like parenting. Um, there's a lot of just like self-talk, like, you know, just... Um, you know, lower your expectations. They're just <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot. Because um, there's that quote, expectations is planned bitterness. And I like that. I really do. I guess the only thing about that quote, um, and not to be critical of whoever came up with it and whoever uses it, I never see my expectations in the moment. Mm -hmm. I always see my expectations after the fact. Mm -hmm. I don't like, I don't know <laughs> the full list of uh, expectations that I have. Um, and that's why I get frustrated with that. But I, I get it. I understand what that means, right? So anyways, I, this idea that like, and, and there's a lot of talk, I hear a lot of talk of like, 
you know, there are times like people will say things, um, you know, like if you're struggling and you go to someone looking for advice or counsel, um, even, you know, even in sort of like sort of a gospel center context, there's sort of the tendency to say, well, how does the gospel speak into that? How can we bring the gospel to bear? That really, if I can be honest, really irks me. And I hear that a lot, by the way, is how can I bring the gospel to bear in this situation? I don't know, honestly. Um, so this idea of like, just keep reminding yourself who you are in Christ, keep that at the forefront. It should work. It's supposed to work. It, it doesn't. I call it third use of the gospel, by the way. Um, and I have some other terms for it. Um, sanctification and pa- passive aggressive righteousness. But I don't, have time to, I don't have time to delve into it right now. I wish I did. But, um, but I'm thankful for this word in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Um, and Paul says that uh, the outer man is wasting away. Right? The outer man is, is dying daily. But the inner man is renewed daily. And I'm going to step on another sacred cow here. So when I read that, the inner man is renewed daily. Right? And the image I always get is like when you hit like F5 and you refresh uh, refresh your browser. I feel like God's like hitting that F5 in that inner man or that inner person every day. And I look at it from the standpoint of he does it with and without our help. So, you know, I've heard it said that, yes, the Holy Spirit will bring everything back to your remembrance, but you got to put something on file. I've always had a problem with that. I'm like, I got to help the Holy Spirit? Like, he's in trouble if I got to help him. Um, I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit renews the inner man every single day because uh, I can't do it. So a friend of mine was in counseling and his pastor told him, gave him some great advice. He said, hey, try focusing on God instead of your marriage. Uh, and then he recommended a book. I'm not going to call out the book. Um, but if I, if I said the title, you'd know what I'm talking about. But there's a very well-known book about putting God first. And it's very popular. Um, and so he recommended this book. And I thought about that advice, focus on God instead of your marriage. Focus on God instead of your marriage. And the thought occurred to me, man, I don't live with God. I live with my spouse. I mean, I get it. Yeah, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not, not trying to be irreverent. I mean, definitely. There's, like, um, there's definitely something to be said for spending time with the Lord, spending time reading the Bible. I did a lot more of that uh, before I got married, before I had children. And those, those have been excellent times. Um, if you get time to, like, soak in the presence of the Lord and spend time in prayer. That is awesome, right? But I don't know if anyone else has experienced, like, if you're having, if you're in a season where you're going through difficulties in your marriage, and if you ever try to, like, pray through those things and, you know, leave it at the feet of Jesus, which is ridiculous. I've never left anything at the feet of Jesus. (laughs) Um, Seriously. Uh, I mean, I've tried, right? But um, the, uh, if you've ever, like, emerged from your place of like intimacy with the Lord, those problems are still there waiting for you, right? And they really are a lot more powerful in a functional sense uh, than your presence with the Lord. There are times that you can have difficulties and conflicts and you can really wonder like, where is the Lord at? I read about Jesus being my advocate. I need you to advocate for me, Jesus. I need you to come down here and show my spouse that I'm right. Uh, and it's just that it, that never happens. Um, and so as much as we should and, and we would like to focus on things above, not on things on the earth. Earthly things have a tremendous power to distract us, don't they? Oswald Chambers, I used to, um, years ago, take great comfort from uh, the well-known devotional, My Utmost First Highest. He has this to say. He says, it is incredible what enormous power there is in simple things 
to distract our attention away from God. Refuse to be swamped by the cares of this world. Another thing that distracts us is our passion for vindication. Augustine prayed, O Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Mm -hmm. Such a need for constant vindication destroys our soul's faith in God. Don't say I must explain myself or I must get people to understand. Our Lord never explained anything. He left the misunderstandings or misconceptions of others to correct themselves. That's great. I'm not Jesus, okay? Um, I'm, and, and, and being married has quickly taught me that. You know, there was, uh, I remember one time having breakfast with some guys and this uh, individual, he was opening up and, you know, we had this ability to just be really transparent with each other. And he was going through worse stuff than I was going through. Here, here's some advice. And this sounds really bad, okay? But um, I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, if you're going through uh, difficulties and challenges, um, this, this, this is going to sound really intensive. Find somebody that's going through something worse. Um, and, and, and I've done that, not intentionally, but I found myself in situations where you're being transparent and you're, you're venting and you're sharing, and then you listen to someone else's uh, stuff that they're going through, and they're like, man, my stuff's not uh, nearly as bad. But this guy, he's going, his stuff is like way worse than mine was. Mine was. And he said that, um, he sort of told this anecdote about, um, I guess he said he sensed the presence of the Lord saying to him, now you get to know what it's like to be like Christ to your wife. Uh, because as you know, Jesus died for the church, and the church isn't very nice to Jesus. Uh, but he still loves the church as his own flesh. And, you know, that kind of like, and I've heard people say things like, well, you know, but when I've shared, you know, challenges and what have you that I've gone through, I've had, I've had people say to me, uh, you know, well, now you're getting to, now you get to be like Christ. And I don't want to be like Christ, okay? I, I want my marriage to just be perfectly blissful all the time. Uh, there's different cliches, you know, that marriage isn't a competition, it should be a partnership, right? And, you know, but the same people that say that will say marriage, you know, we're in it to win it. To win what? Um, it often feels like a competition, even though we know that it shouldn't be. A well-known study Bible has this to say in commenting on Song of Solomon 2.15. Um, and yes, okay, full disclosure, I confess that early on when we were married, uh, we did try to use Song of Solomon as like a primer for um, romance. It's not written for that reason. <laughs> Don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Uh, but this, 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 um, this particular commentary from the study Bible says, I guess in Song of Solomon 2.15, it talks about um, catch the little foxes or what have you. And so the uh, commentary says, little foxes are an example of the kinds of problems that can disturb or destroy a relationship. The lovers wanted anything that could potentially cause problems between them to be removed. It is often the little foxes that cause the biggest problems in marriage. These irritations must not be minimized or ignored, uh, but identified so that together the couple can deal with them. This is good advice. I, I really think it is, right? You've heard the cliche, you know, good marriages don't just happen. And I, I think there's truth to that, right? I mean, I think there's, it's important. Uh, things like, you know, being able to talk to one another, having date night, uh, being considerate of each other. You know, if you have to go to counseling, I mean, go to counseling. All that stuff is, is good counsel. And the Bible is full of nothing but good counsel. But good counsel isn't the same thing as good news. And good counsel, while it may be good, it doesn't bring the relief that we crave. Mm -hmm. Only good news can do that. Right? Paul says in Romans 7, I agree with the law. I love the law. It's righteous. It's holy. It's perfect. Right? But I'm a completely different story altogether. You know, the law is good. 
right? But I'm carnal, sold under sin. I agree with the law, but I don't find in me one ounce of ability to do what it says, right? So I wanted to show this clip from Chris Rock. Um, and listen, I had selected this clip long before the infamous, uh, uh, you know, what have you, which I'm so tired of hearing about. Um, every time you go on Facebook, I'm tired of hearing about that incident. Anyways, uh, and I wish I could have shared it, uh, but he talked about, he said something to the effect of, you know, if you've never, I'm going to try to paraphrase it. He said, if you've never stared at a bottle of rat poison for 45 minutes straight, if you've never stood in front of the mirror practicing your alibi, You've never been in love. <laughs> if you never bought a shovel and a rug to roll them up in, uh, you've never been in love. And the only thing that stopped you was an episode of CSI. <laughs> you figured, ah, they're thorough. They might catch me. I better make up. Uh, so I wish I could have shown that. But uh, in any case, James has something to say about this as well. In James 4, he says, um, you know, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Right? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, you kill, you covet, because you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And, you know, again, it sounds like James is saying, and, and I quoted this from James just to show that every last one of us in here is a murderer, right? Um, how can you want to murder and make love to the same person, right? Like, it's because we're forgiven murderers. And I think about this... Um, well, let me say this here. So, so, so James, as he goes on to, to talk about this, uh, really diagnosing our true condition and the sin that, that's really raging in us, right? We, we know to do right, but we just absolutely cannot do it. He talks about this idea that like you, have not, you do not have because you do not ask, right? And again, this sounds like what James is saying is that ah, prayer is the answer, right? But again, how, how does that work? You know, there are times where you pray for your spouse and you try to pray through things together. Uh, I remember in this one church I went to, every Wednesday prayer night, I was amazed at uh, the older women in the church who were praying for husbands uh, that weren't yet saved. And I'm not kidding, every single prayer meeting night when they would say, do we have any prayer requests? They would pray for the same dude. And just to show you like how immature I was, in my mind, I'm, I'm serious, I'd be thinking, man, just let the poor devil just go to hell. Like, He's not saved yet. We've been praying every week. Um, that can get exhausting, praying about things that just refuse to change. And you can give up. There's a very famous, um, there's a very famous movie that uh, came out some time ago in which individuals struggling through his marriage. And someone gives him a challenge to spend the next 30 or 40 days doing one charitable act after another for your spouse or what have you. And I had a buddy that actually tried it. He said, man, I made it about maybe five days into it, right? Uh, we just don't have the strength in us uh, to commit the way that we ought to commit, to kind of press uh, and, and persevere, persevere through these things. Um, so going back to what James says here, James is just raw with it, right? James says, so you don't have because you don't ask, right? So you don't pray enough. Okay. So James, maybe the answer is I should pray more, right? He says, then when you pray, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get in your pleasures, right? So even when I do pray, my motive is wrong. Our prayers are often, are less often about how God might be using our marriage to sanctify us and more about asking God to fix our perceived problem, i.e. the other person, right? Uh, I think about St. Paul. I like St. Paul. He gives me a lot of hope. 
he talks about a thorn that he had in his flesh. And he talks about praying for this thing constantly to be removed. But when it was all said and done, the response that he got from Jesus is that my grace is sufficient. But when I think about that, I think about Paul's prayer for the thorn to be removed. It's not a very good prayer. It's not biblical. I think of Jesus' words. He says that in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, right? And what's in the world? Tribulation. Jesus says in this world, in this life, you will have tribulation. Jesus doesn't want us to pray for the thorn to be removed. He wants us to pray uh, for more of his grace. But again, we don't really want more of his grace. <laughs> we just want to be right. If you haven't killed one another in your marriage, like you're actually doing pretty good. If you haven't actually, I mean, you've probably thought it. I know you have. I know you've thought about it at least once. Um, but if you haven't actually gone through with the act, that's actually good. Give yourself some credit <laughs> that you haven't done that. Um, but is that the righteousness that pleases God? The fact that you can say, well, at least I haven't murdered my spouse, right? <clears throat> no, the righteousness that pleases God is Jesus. And you are complete in him. He's your righteousness. I can remember, um, I'm going to skip that because for the sake of time. I have another anecdote, but I need to be respectful of time here. So I am actually going to skip ahead. Okay, let me skip ahead to here. Thank you for being patient, by the way, uh, in the absence of media and what have you. Um, so let me just talk here just really briefly because we're coming on quarter to 12 here. And um, I think it's going to be time to wrap up shortly. So the, the reality is that, uh, no, we're not really looking for sanctification in marriage, right? Ultimately, what we're looking for, we're looking for ourselves. When you first enter into a relationship, right, whether you're dating or you know, when you're first beginning a marriage, there's kind of a glory and a glow that can very quickly fade, right? St. Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians, uh, he talks about the law as like this brilliant, resilient light. It has a glory, but, but it fades, the other person becomes the horizon of our untold hopes, dreams, fantasies, expectations. Ultimately, what we think is that another person can justify us. Uh, so I consider the, uh, in the 1990s, uh, Madonna's song, Justify My Love, uh, which was connected to a very infamous uh, book and movie that was sort of uh, our generation's version of Fifty Shades. But, but what's interesting, and I couldn't, sh even if I had the media, I would not be able to show that here. Um, it just, it wouldn't uh, be appropriate. Uh, but, but, but I was, I was, it's interesting as I looked at the, the lyrics uh, in, the, in the songs, I really never knew what the lyrics were. I just knew it was something that we weren't supposed to, to look at or what have you. Uh, but the lyrics are interesting. So she says, um, and they're written by Lenny Kravitz, but the lyrics say, I want to kiss you in Paris. I want to hold your hand in Rome. I want to run naked in a rainstorm, make love in a tra train cross country. You put this in me, so now what? Now what? Wanting, needing, waiting for you to justify my love. Hoping, praying for you to justify my love. Talk to me, tell me your dreams. Am I in them? Tell me your fears. Are you scared? Tell me your stories. I'm not afraid of who you are. We can fly, right? So e even in that, right? Even in this, uh, even in this, beyond X-rated, uh, you know, portrayal of sexuality uh, that, again, was considered very scandalous at the time, uh, you, you can hear in here almost a prayer and a cry out for justification. This is what people, I'm not saying that everybody wants to do all this, like, 
bizarre, like kinky stuff or whatever. Uh, I mean, if you do, that's okay. You know, uh, grace abounds. But what, 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 what I'm getting at is that uh, everybody's looking for that justification, right? Another person, we want the other person uh, to finally be our justification for us, but we can thank God that there is a love that justifies us irrespective of what we have to offer or what we can bring to the table. There is a love that requires nothing of us, yet gives everything to us. A love that never that asks for and expects nothing in return, but gives us everything without condition. Furthermore, we want our marriages to be the ever-elusive, quote-unquote, more, because we want our spouses to be the ever-elusive, quote-unquote, more, so we can finally become more than what we are. It's only when we despair of our righteousness that we can see Christ as our righteousness. And... Again, um, you know, let me just jump ahead to this here, just for the sake of time. Um, let me just kind of wrap up here with this. So one of the biggest problems in marriage is really sourced in not really fully understanding uh, what Luther describes, referred to as the symbol, right? Simultaneously. I can't say it in, um, how does it, is it, how, does someone know how to actually say the symbol? Okay, I can't. I just, say, say it again, I'm sorry. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> I just say the symbol. I can't say it. I, the other thing I can't say is um, that other thing from Luther. Yeah, I could never say that. Whatever. Uh, I always think of Octune Baby that you two have. <laughs> so Luther's Octune. Anyway, uh, but the symbol, again from the Galatians lectures, uh, paradoxically a Christian is both right and wrong. Holy and profane, an enemy of God and a child of God. These contradictions, no person can harmonize who does not understand the true way of salvation. Under the papacy, we were told to toil until we felt the guilt that had left us. But the authors of this deranged idea were frequently driven to despair in the hour of death. It would have happened to me if Christ had not mercifully delivered me from this error. We comfort the afflicted sinner in this manner. Brother, you can never be perfect in this life. But you can be holy. He will say, well, how can I be holy when I feel my sins? I answer, you feel sin, that is a good sign. To realize that one is ill is a step, and a very necessary step toward recovery. Uh, let me see. Let me just jump ahead here. As far as the conscience is concerned, it may cheerfully ignore the law. But because sin continues to dwell in the flesh, the law waits around to molest our conscience. More and more, however, Christ increases our faith, and in the measure in which our faith is increased, sin, law, and flesh subside. If anyone objects to the gospel and the sacraments and the ground that Christ has taken away our sins once and for all, you will know what to answer. You will answer, indeed, Christ has taken away my sins, but my flesh, the world, and the devil interfere with my faith. This little light of faith in my heart does not shine all over me at once. It's a gradual diffusion. And in the meanwhile, I console myself with the thought that eventually my flesh will be made perfect in the resurrection. Um, so where are you at in your marriage? Would you consider yourselves soulmates? Roommates? Enemies? Inmates? I would submit to you that the answer is all the above. Uh, the law indicts us and always puts us on the wrong side of the ledger. The law indicts everybody as a sinner. Everybody in here, in your marriage, is an inmate, uh, an enemy, a roommate. Nobody's marriage is this perfectly blissful experience of just ongoing, ever-increasing intimacy. Um, nobody's marriage here is devoid of moments where you feel like, why in the hell did I marry this person in the first place? Um, nobody's uh, marriage is, it you know, does not fall in those categories. So the law, it, it always indicts us. 
the problem with a lot of the counsel and advice on marriage, uh, whether it's from the religious world or the irreligious world, is that it always gives us something that we can supposedly do. And I would argue that uh, when the law becomes reduced down to sort of these doable principles that we can apply and expect particular results, that's the thing that perpetuates our misery. That's the thing that, that you know, when the law is sort of, in a sense, kind of like keeping us on, on life support, uh, that's the thing. Um, and that, that's, not the, that's not the law you want. The law is good. You need it, right? But I need a law that's going to completely indict me and kill me dead. I need the law that's like, I need the law to be a diagnosis for which there's no second opinion, okay? Um, so whether you're soulmates, roommates, enemies, or inmates, ultimately you are children of God. And I'm going to let the Apostle John get the last word here. Um, 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know is that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, we will see him as he is. All, we, all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. And I love this here because John kind of reverses our order of things. John places the hope. Uh, the way we would place hope is in terms of, Lord, the better and better that I get in my walk with you and in my love toward others, specifically in the context of marriage, uh, the more hope I have of earning your favor. John reverses that order and says, no, you already have the hope. The one who has this hope already uh, purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you see yourself as being as pure as Jesus Christ? Do you live with that in front of you, at the forefront of your conscience, all the time? Of course, the answer is no, right? Um, it's really impossible and <laughs> very difficult to really keep that. I shouldn't say impossible. It's impossible to really keep that in mind, right? Like, even maybe in a session like this, there's probably a measure, I hope, of relief that you get from, uh, as, we, as we consider these things, right? Or when you come out of church and you hear a really good word and you really hear the pure gospel, there's a levity and a peace of mind that we have for a moment, right? But can anybody else testify? That doesn't really last that long. It doesn't take long and it doesn't take much for us to, the way I like to describe it, is sort of land back in the ditch again. Um, but the good news is that Jesus comes and rescues us all over again and again and again and again. Uh, but this is the thing is that seeing yourself as being as pure as Christ is, you're not working to be as pure as Christ. You're not striving to be it. You already have it because of the hope of the gospel. It takes an, an entire lifetime, I think, to really begin to digest that. And even a, an entire lifetime in this age isn't enough to even begin to scratch the surface of the full implications of how deeply loved we are. But thank God we have all of eternity to enjoy the fulfillment of what that's going to be. I'm done. Amen.